Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and I'm pleased to welcome Martin Leinweber from Frankfurt today. Martin is a digital asset product strategist at Market Vector Indexes. You may recall we had a good introduction to crypto with Matt Hogan and David Lawant from Bitwise back in September. My goal for today's episode is to further that debate around the inclusion of crypto within balanced portfolios. To better understand the various ways that investors can invest in the space beyond straight-up currencies, as well as the rigor of the valuation methodologies that may support it. So, welcome to the show, Martin. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start, unfortunately, Martin, with some bad news. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, uh, virtual or otherwise, you know that the bankruptcy of one of crypto's biggest exchanges, FTX, under cheerleader and recently indicted Sam Bankman-Fried, has created a ripple of doom of sorts within certain corners of the asset class in recent weeks. And this after an already difficult year for crypto investors. The result has been a fall in value of about two-thirds for the biggest names in the space as we record here in December. Perhaps a depressing place to start, Martin, but I wonder if you could please cover the current events portion of the show today and explain exactly what happened with FTX and the impact it's having on the neighboring elements within the crypto ecosystem. Yeah, you're right. It's... It's very disappointing. I think we can say everything was wrong with FTX. So when we read the CFTC and SEC complaint, it's very interesting. We get an enormous amount of detail. So we know that FTX was knowingly commingling funds with its affiliated market maker and prop shop Alameda from the very beginning. So when FTX was originally founded, FTX also provided Alameda from the very beginning and effectively unlimited credit line and they even set a flag in the code base which allowed Alameda to go negative and prevented them from being margin calls. Wow. They even had a preferred API access to FTX so they had a lower latency compared to other traders. So I think it's fair to say that it was a scam from the start. Now you hear a lot of bad explanations why this happened. Some say this proves that crypto is a scam. But I have to say that there's really nothing about crypto that caused this to happen at FTX. What happened was that an offshore business reached into the pots where all the customer money was and did stuff with it they weren't supposed to do. And this can happen in any line of business. We have a lot of cases in the traditional finance world with Madoff, MF Global, and uh, MF Global basically had exact the same situation. Yeah, they took dollars in client funds and gambled on European sovereign debt. And they lost money and went bankrupt. Um, FTX was a centralized entity that was not following their terms of service and lied to customers. Nothing went wrong with Bitcoin or Ethereum. You can blame uh, St. Bankman Fried, and I think you can also blame uh, delinquent investors and poor internal controls. So we have some of the largest and most reputable VCs, and it's very clear that they did not do their homework. Yeah, so they did not do sufficient diligence. They did not install a board. They did not even install a CFO, though, well, we had a chief fraud officer, but not a real chief financial officer. Um, so again, it's not a specific crypto problem, but I do think that we need the same uh, professionalism in crypto as we have in ThreadFi. So you need a separation between the exchange, the administrator, the custodian, the market maker, etc. Um, 
that can't be all the same company. And I'm pretty confident that we'll get there. In Europe, we have the NICA, the Market in Crypto Essence Regulation, um, which will help to professionalize the crypto market. And my hope is that we'll see the same in the US, although it's much, much harder to say what will happen. You have this alphabet soup of regulators, the SEC, the CFTC, the OCC, uh, then you have the you know, bid license, etc. And nobody knows who is responsible for what. And, and I think this has to change. That's important. Okay, let's get into our discussion here, Martin, and leave the, the bad news behind. We're going to talk currencies today, um, as well as non-currency plays within the crypto space. But before we get there... One of the things I'd really like to better understand is the role of tokens in the crypto universe. And I wonder if you could just help our listeners with this basic kind of crypto 101 question and help discern the difference between a coin and a token and how tokens create values for their holders and for their issuers. Yeah, that's a good and very important question. So the first question we should ask ourselves is, does a token accrue value to the token holder and what are the things that want to lead me to hold the token and as you mentioned the token is the term for everything when you hear coins basically it refers to uh, tokens which are issued by blockchains by the base layer blockchains such as bitcoin or ethereum or cardano but at the end of the day you can all then call token and we have applications such as uniswap or the other dApps digital applications generally we refer to the token world. I think the problem is that most people first, the first contact for them within crypto is with Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is one of the hardest coins to value because it is a form of money, which is always hard to value and has no cash flows. Bitcoin is sometimes compared to gold, which I think of as a digital version of gold, but this doesn't help either because gold is also hard to value. So what is the main reason why a coin like Bitcoin has a value and you need to think of it like a network. You can basically say that all of those protocols are networks. So you can use some network models to figure out a value. Now, uh, Metcalfe's law is perhaps the most popular one. It says that the value of a network is equal to the square of the number of users who are connected to it. So it's not just about how many people use a network, but also how many connections those users have with each other. The simple example is a telephone. If you're the only one who uses it, it's pretty much useless. But if a whole country uses it, that's a whole different story. Now, there isn't a lot of research out there, but I have to mention Timothy Peterson from Kane Island Research, who did a lot of work to model Bitcoin with Metcalfe's law. Now, what he does is even more complicated. So to improve the model, he's adding a sigmoid function, which is a kind an S-curve, which measures the adoption rate along with interest rates and transaction volumes. So you plot the Metcalf curve and compare it to the price to see if Bitcoin is cheap or expensive based on its adoption. So if the value of the network goes up as more people use it, um, why do I need a token then? And that's pretty simple. A token lets you prove that you own that network. It's written down in a very clear way on a blockchain. So classic Web2 networks like Google, Facebook, and Twitter use behavioral economics by giving users dopamine hits when they like or follow something. So Bitcoin is the perfect behavioral network because it rewards you with a token. 
and you bring more people into the network and they transact with each other, your value goes up. And uh, let's take Facebook, for example. In Facebook's network, having more users might make your experience better, but you don't gain anything from a stronger network effect. All of this value is for the Facebook stockholder. So in Web2, the user and the shareholder who gets the value are kept separate. In crypto, however, it's the user of the network who is important. And this will create tribalism by definition. So since everyone now has a reason to want their network to do better than the other network. And, and that's why um, this Bitcoin maximalism exists. You can see the same phenomenon for other protocols. For example, <clears throat> there are the Ethereans, the Ethereum network. But keep in mind, there's a huge speculation in crypto. So that difference between the model values and the price can be great in terms of magnitude, but also in terms of duration. So if you like, we can also talk about easier to value cryptos, uh, which have the cash flow. We can also talk about uh, stakeholder alignments, uh, which is also very interesting, I think, for your audience. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to get into that. And we can, we can circle back to uh, another topic I want to cover, which is how we can kind of group these into categories. But let's, let's, let's go straight to valuations, because I, I feel like that's, that's within our listener base, that always seems to be the question that comes up is how, you know, the way you've described the valuation of the currencies themselves, it sounds like, you know, the, the value is, is accrued by having more people in the network. And so as long as the people believe, then the value goes up. And maybe I'm simple, oversimplifying that, which is a hard one to put into a model, for example. Um, but there, I know there are other categories, um, elements within the ecosystem that do generate cash flows and look a little bit more like traditional uh, stocks that we might value. So, so can you talk a little bit about the kind of the other different pieces of the of the ecosystem that, and and how those valuations are are being done? That's true. So it's just easier to value an asset if you have a cash flow, and we have that in crypto as well. So let's take Ethereum, a smart contract platform, and the number two behind Bitcoin. Ethereum also has a network effect, but it also has some cash flows included. Since Ethereum switched from a proof-of-work consensus algorithm to a proof-of-stake algorithm, you can now lock your Ether on-chain, and in exchange for validating blocks, you get new Ether plus transaction fees caused by the digital applications which live on top of Ethereum. Um, you can always think of it as a as a kind of a of a dividend, yeah. So at the moment you get a four percent annualized return. Now you can value Ethereum using cash flow analysis again and compare it to other proof of stake networks. You can also compare the issuance of new tokens with the revenue the network provides to measure and efficiency. And on top of Ethereum, for example, there are also digital applications that make money. Think about decentralized exchanges. So when you do a business on a decentralized exchange on chain, you pay a fee. Part of this fee goes to the liquidity provider. And some networks deliver this revenue to the token holders or its treasury. And so you can suddenly figure out things like the price to sales ratio and other ratios. For example, the website Token Terminal gives a great overview of tokens, uh, which charge its fees and are therefore a source of income. So overall, I think it's much easier to look at crypto from a venture perspective as opposed to 
looking at crypto from a publicly traded equity perspective. And the question is, what could this token be if the, if the total addressable market grows as to what is this thing like right now? And that mindset is really important. Yeah. And apart from that, it's also a great stakeholder alignment, which is also very interesting in the token world. Okay, so we've, we have a few different models for it. A number of service providers within the system, exchanges, lenders, and the like. And I know one of the things that you spend a lot of time doing, Martin, is focusing on categorizing these crypto assets. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit today about, about that work and maybe tell us well, like, what patterns do you see within and between the categories of, of crypto assets and, and how, how can investors learn from and, and exploit these patterns? Yeah, I think that's a very important point because um, we have over, I think, over 20,000 tokens at the moment. So um, everybody knows Bitcoin, Ethereum, a handful of other coins, but it's really very demanding to um, watch all the tokens out there. And what you also see is that Bitcoin dominance is continuously falling. The Bitcoin dominance is the market cap of Bitcoin in relation to the total crypto market cap. And uh, you see that the dominance is continuously falling um, and is not even rising in this bear market, indicating that there should be other tokens, other coins out there, um, which, which gain investor interest. And so we decided to have a similar approach as in the equity world. In the equity world, you have uh, the chick sectors, yeah, different different sectors, financials, oil and gas, consumer staples, yeah, you name it. And so we we thought it makes sense to have the same in crypto. Of course, not the same sectors, but to classify. And so we, at the moment, look at the top 400, 500 tokens, and whenever they are larger than 250 million in market cap, we do a deep dive, deep dive, we look at the white paper, we look at third party research at Discord channels and try to identify the end user demand. What is the economic value driver? And so after analyzing all these tokens, we came up with um, eight categories. In the meantime, we also have some industry groups and subsectors and uh, we launched five indexes at the category level. So these are, for example, um, centralized finance. That's everything which has to do with the traditional finance world built on top of uh, blockchain. For example, I, I mentioned it before, decentralized exchanges, lending. We have infrastructure applications which take care of all those computational tasks, decentralized storage, which is very important going forwards or um, oracles bring, bring off-chain data, external data on-chain. We have one category, uh, which are the centralized exchanges. Yeah, we talked about FTX, um, but there's also Binance, OKX, and so forth. We have media entertainment, which is also very interesting. These are, for example, tokens, which are part of the metaverse, gaming, broadcasting, all the NFT stuff. And last but not least, we constructed an index and smart contract platforms. So that's the base layer chain, which provides the operating system for all the digital applications on top of that. Yeah, think of your iPhone or an Apple Android, iOS, 
and all the applications on top of that. And this just helps to understand the market better. Because if you look at crypto, it, it is very narrative driven. Um, we had, for example, two years ago in 2020, we had the DeFi summer. So it was all about DeFi uh, protocols. Um, last year, we had a lot of interest in smart contract platforms being cheaper, better than an Ethereum, having more throughput. And Q4 last year, we had Facebook renaming to Meta, and suddenly everybody was interested in Metaverse tokens. And um, what you maybe don't see in a uh, random basket or even in a top 10 basket, you suddenly can identify that with those categories. So you have a dispersion in returns. Of course, they are all correlated in hard liquidity sell-offs. But um, what you clearly see is that um, um, they act independently because Bitcoin should have nothing to do with a centralized exchange and this centralized exchange should have nothing to do with a gaming joke. And uh, going forward, we will see more categories and uh, with the maturity of the market, I think you will also see that correlations are getting lower within the sectors. Yeah, because I think from a traditional investor perspective, the idea of being able to get exposure that is um, coin agnostic uh, currency agnostic, I guess, and be able to just be a service provider in that world would probably be preferable. So you're not hitching your wagon to any one, you know, Bitcoin versus Ethereum and so on. That's true. Uh, as I said, you have to have a VC perspective. Those tokens are all um, startup investments from day one, but on a mark-to-market -market basis. And you have to um, account for that a lot of them uh, we go to zero. So selecting the right tokens is not easy. Yeah? There are some hedge funds out there, active managers who provide the service, and that makes sense. But I think for, for a lot of investors, it's just easier to buy a basket according to market cap and uh, getting, getting the crypto return, having the guaranteed crypto return, yeah? buying the winners, selling the losers. And I think that's a good proxy um, to invest. So are there any relationships that you can point to across them? I mean, you, you talked about there were eight different sort of categories and you, and you did five indexes. And what, what are the behaviors like of, of these different categories in terms of relative to one another and, and in terms of the diversification benefits that they might provide to a traditional portfolio? One caveat, we have a relatively short time series in that space. Yeah. So Bitcoin has the longest track record with, with over 10 years. Then we had uh, Ethereum starting in 2015. A lot of those other coins are just one year, one and a half years old. So we have to be careful <clears throat> when it comes to, to results. But what you clearly see at the moment is that we had a very long phase of uh, smart contract platforms outperforming everything, which is, I think, an investor preference which makes sense because if I don't know which protocol, which digital application will survive, the betting on the base layer chains providing the basic infrastructure and the operating system for all those different applications, whether it's DeFi, NFTs, 
decentralized social media, etc., uh, make sense from an investor perspective. And uh, what we also see is that, interestingly, centralized exchange token were still one of the best performers. Yeah, if we cancel FTX out, um, you still see that Binance is a token which is performing relatively good. And it has something to do also with the tokenomics. Yeah, you have on the one hand a utility token on those exchanges. Yeah, so you can trade efficiently, get a discount, uh, get a better trading experience. On the other hand, a lot of exchanges burn their token according to their profits. So you're also an economic component. So you clearly see that there are sectors which are preferred by some investors. And then you have some sectors which really have underperformed over a long time. And these are decentralized finance tokens and all things related to the metaverse, which is surprising. Um, but because there is a lot of demand for metaverse, you read it everywhere. But um, this has also something to do with the supply and demand dynamics of those tokens, which are very often not beneficial for the token holder. Now, this goes back to what I said at the beginning. You have to ask yourself, how does the token accrue value? And there are some better models, um, especially in the smart contract platform world. And there are a lot of questionable models, for example, also in the gaming world we've seen so far. And there you see clear, um, you see clear trends already. Yeah. So I want to ask one question about allocations, because about allocations rather. Anecdotally, it feels a bit like if you listen to the true believers in crypto and DeFi and so on, they talk about really going all in with large portions of their assets without really potentially accounting for the risk that's being taken there. So my question, I guess, to you is how much would you suggest your mother put in her 401k? My mother. If she was, if she was, an, if she was an American and had a, had a U.S. Uh, defined contribution plan. Okay. <laughs> so, of course, no financial advice. I, I recommended a little portion to my to my parents. Um, so, when you buy an eighty volatility asset or even higher, precision size is really important. Uh, and I've I've written a book in German about asset identification with crypto assets. And in the book, I co-authored together. We made a very small allocation of one point five percent, and uh, took that from the bond allocation. So we cut back on bonds and put more money into stocks. We evaluated different portfolios and the impact of crypto is more or less the same. So why so small? Yeah. And what you can observe with this small allocation is when you add an asset with such a high return potential, your overall cumulative return will, of course, go up with the allocation. So more crypto is better. There's almost a linear relationship between how much crypto is added to a portfolio and how much money is made over time. But, here's the but, this return comes with a higher volatility. And as the amount of crypto in a portfolio grows, so does its volatility. But it's interesting that this relationship is not linear. So allocating between 0.5%, 3% of a portfolio to crypto has a small effect on portfolio volatility. But the effect grows quickly as the size of the allocation goes up. And it's very important in finance not to go broke. 
because if I lose everything, then I'm out of the business. And that's the reason why smaller allocations are often better. The same thing is true for the sharp ratio. Adding crypto to a portfolio tends to increase risk-adjusted returns, but adding more crypto has less of an effect after a certain point. This point is between 3 to 4%. And when deciding how much crypto to add to their portfolios, investors probably need to think about maximum drawdowns more than anything else. And as a general rule, allocations below 5%, tend to have a little effect on the maximum drawdown. Allocations above 5%, on the other hand, become important. So the maximum drawdown has on average stayed the same for allocations between 1% and 3%. This may come as a surprise to some people since crypto is very volatile, but the crypto returns, on the other hand, are not typically correlated to those of stocks or bonds. And this can help to protect the portfolio against drops and um, things change pretty quickly if you add more than 5%. Yeah, The crypto allocation itself starts to cause then maximum drawdowns. And one important aspect which I have to point out is think of rebalancing. Yeah, When an asset with a lot of volatility is added to a portfolio, rebalancing is more important than it would be otherwise especially when you are adding a non-correlated asset. So you buy back the asset to its initial proportion if it has fallen in price and you sell if the asset had a great performance. So it's implicit buy low, sell high strategy. And, and that's something a lot of people forget. They keep to their position, hold it, have a nice return, and then they just observe and look how the allocation or the, the crypto is falling. And um, that's that's pretty important to to have this rebalancing feature. Yeah, yeah, that rebalancing piece is is really important, especially since, as you described, you've got that that spike in in risk that occurs once you get past three or four percent. So you can accidentally end up with a five, six, seven percent position in there if you don't rebalance back down. Now, I mean, if you want to maximize your returns, you have to add a lot of crypto, but the risk to go broke is also increasing dramatically. And that's that's something I have to point out. I, I've met so many people in the last year being 100% all in crypto. And it's something I just can't recommend. Yeah. Start yeah, you're, small. you're in the speculative ter- territory once you're doing that. You're yes. outside of investing at that point. Yes. Yeah. True. All right, Martin, we're, we're, we're running out of time here. So I'm going to, I'm going to get you with our final question here. And that's, uh, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? So my first job in the industry was, uh, with the asset manager of the Munich Re, um, as it was a mix of, uh, strategic asset allocation and relationship management. And it was good and great, but I would say face more risk. Yeah. And uh, don't wait too long. Yeah, if you have any dream, go for it. Yeah, and uh, I think that's important. I always changed my positions. Yeah, so I went from a mandate manager to a portfolio manager, from equities or hedge fund analyst to bonds, and now I'm in crypto. And I think that's important. Not not being too too cautious and and having afraid of everything or be fearful of everything. 
I've been joined today by Martin Leinweber, Digital Asset Product Strategist at Market Vector Index. Thanks so much for joining me today, Martin. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this is V Guiding Assets. <laughs>